Hey everyone, welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we discuss popular culture with a Black feminist anthropological lens. I'm Alyssa, and I use she, her, hers pronouns. Hey everybody, I'm Brendan, and I use she, her, hers pronouns as well. Yes, we are back for season two, your sophomore course in, I don't even know, (laughs) what, if, if Zora's Daughters had a major, what would it be? I don't tell know. us. Yeah, you all tell us because we have no idea. <laughs> Anyways, we had a solid two-month break. What did you get up to, Brendan? Mm, well, this summer I turned 28. You know, hey, bow, bow, um, bow. Bow, bow, bow. Started my Saturn return and it's coming swinging, honey. Uh, um, yeah. Ooh, when I tell you. And when I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I started... On a high note, though, like I started my ethnographic interviews after the Panini Press suspended all research activities. And in July, I took a break from that to commemorate my father's life. For those of you who don't follow us on social media, uh, my father passed away this summer. He transitioned at the end of Zoom, of June. Oh my God, Zoom. At the end of June, um, after a long battle with cancer. And during all of that, I also moved. Uh, out of my house into an apartment. So now, finally settling into September, getting ready to write my dissertation. And I finally feel like I'm making progress towards graduation after like a year and a half. Yes, yes. There have been some definite transitions for you Mm -hmm. and the folks in your life. So, you know, I'm just so proud to see I hate the word proud but you know what I mean if it didn't imply that I did something (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm just so impressed to see you know how you've been pushing pushing through everything that's been going on um yeah also your new apartment is dope I love it I've been there (laughs) y'all yes first time first time visit yes fine I finally made it up to Baltimore had my first crab boil. Mm. What an experience. What a thing. Mm. Y'all, oh yeah, I'm not vegetarian anymore. <laughs> I'm not vegetarian anymore. Um, I have been, I had been struggling with just feeling tired all the time. And I would be mid-sentence. I couldn't remember things. I would have a conversation. I wouldn't remember all of it later. And then one day I had a craving for oxtail the Mm. wonderful, delicious Jamaican dish. And I said, you know what? Forget it. I'm just going to eat that oxtail. And I woke up the next day and it was like the clouds had parted. Oh. I could see the sunlight. I had before just been in this haze for like two years and I am back to eating all types of meat. And no, my stomach didn't hurt. People always ask that. (laughs) I did not have any gastrointestinal issues. Oxtail came through, saved the day. I love it. (laughs) I love it. But yeah, for my summer, I basically just, you know, I chilled. I, you know, read a little bit. I watched quite a bit of television as I've Mm -hmm. been wont to do. I did submit a grant application, which I was very proud about because it is one of the more demanding ones in terms of all of the things that you have to submit with it. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, personally, I've just been working on my penmanship. I bought this little handwriting book and I practice in it. It's really cute. And 
I was just like, you know, I've been journaling a lot and I look at my handwriting and I've been writing cards and things like that because, you know, you're not seeing people as often. Yeah. So you want to send them things. And I'm like, oh, I don't like my handwriting. <laughs> well, it's no better time than now to change it. So, yeah. Listen, that is it's not going to serve me in the apocalypse. <laughs> like, when that asteroid comes down, look, it's not going to serve me at all. Come but. now. Come now, asteroid. <laughs> come now, please. Not to where we're living, though. Um, elsewhere. Yeah, I'm really excited about what we have in store this year. Um, I'm hoping that I'll be able to go to Martinique to get started on my field work. Well, I'll be recording from there. So that's going to be kind of cool. But yeah, here we are. That's right. Like, huh, well, this is us. Feel free to catch up with us on IG or Twitter. Let us know how your summer went, if you had a summer. Um, but we're going to go ahead and get started. On today's episode, we are talking about aesthetics. We're talking about the activist influencer, quote, movement, and how now more than ever, y'all, we need a radical Black feminist praxis and thought to create the world that we want to see. So let's get right into it, Alyssa. What's the word for today? All right. Our word for today is aesthetics, of course. Um, whew, what a word. Just mm. want to preface this and say that we are not experts. We do not <laughs> We do not specialize in aesthetics Absolutely. Um, or aesthetic thought. Although it does sound really cool to say that you are. <laughs> So y'all hit us up if we got something wrong. But we I just wanted to start with the general. So as a gloss, it's it's a branch of philosophy. And philosophy is the study of the most fundamental, most basic questions. You know, some that sound like they have obvious answers, but are actually pretty complicated. Like, what is reality? Someone might say, well, reality is something I can touch. But then what about sound? Can you touch sound? No, you can't. Mm -hmm. But is it real? There you go. I don't know. You just, it's just philosophy is going down the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> so the field can be broken down into different areas. And depending on who you ask, there may be five, there may be 12 branches of philosophy. It's all a debate. Um, but I think for social scientists, we tend to engage with about five of them. I would say maybe you could add one or two more, but typically we'll be thinking about thinking through, you know, um, philosophers who work on metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, politics, and aesthetics. Mm. And so for those of you who are like, but what about ontology? <laughs> everyone's, you know, everyone's all about the ontological yeah, turn and all these favorite things. word. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a favorite. Um, ontology is actually a subfield of metaphysics. And metaphysics deals with the nature of reality and existence and ontology deals with the nature of being. So that falls under that category. So it aims to answer questions like, what is reality? Um, is there a supreme being? Questions like that. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. And that subfield will work through questions like, what is knowledge? How do we know what we know? Ethics is the study of action, of right and wrong. Questions like, what should I do? What ought I do? The ought is, is a... <laughs> very, very philosopher. What ought I do? What ought I do? Um, <laughs> folks who are in my first semester theory class will know why I'm stressing the ought so hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also questions like, how do I judge what's right and wrong? 
Politics then inquires into questions of force, of power, and society. So what can or cannot be done? How should we govern? And then finally, aesthetics is interested in beauty, taste, and art. And it thinks through questions like, what is beauty? What is art? Is art subjective? Is art objective? Is beauty always subjective? Can it be objective? Things like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, So keep in mind that these branches of philosophy are not mutually exclusive. So they can overlap. You can think about politics and aesthetics like we're going to do today. Right. Um, Western philosophers have written about a variety of these branches. So Plato, which many of us know, the philosopher Greek, I believe, mm-hmm. right? has ideas about I'm like, yeah, you know, one of those um, <laughs> has ideas about aesthetics. But he also wrote about political philosophy. Also, contemporary philosophers might specialize in a particular branch like Kantian ethics or platonic political philosophy. But back to the aesthetic, right? It's generally agreed that there are three ways of thinking about the aesthetic. Form, as in art itself. Aesthetic properties, as in ways we describe or judge the aesthetic and the aesthetic experience. So things like desire, pleasure, or any activity undertaken for its own sake rather than for some practical purpose. Right. And the other thing that we wanted to say is that we're speaking specifically about Western philosophers. Of course, there are other groups of people who also philosophize. Is that a word? <laughs> who engage in questions of thought in, in mm-hmm. different ways. We're using this, um, this particular structure of, of philosophy. And of course, people do think about what could be called aesthetics, but through a different framework, through a different kind of epistemology, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. So we do make aesthetic judgments all the time. When we call something beautiful, something joyful, serene, it's all about our experience, what we're experiencing, and that connection between the outside and the inside, the inside being within us, our feelings, our emotions, our affects. And so these concepts are more than just perceiving. And so to make these judgments, it requires another level of cognition. It's said, I prefer to say attunement, uh, because I don't necessarily reason out whether I like a piece of art or whether mm. I like this music. I I kind of just feel it. And then maybe I'll think about it and try to reason out why. But the truth is we probably don't actually know why we like the things that we like. You just make up some, some reason or some logic behind it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that sounds about right to me. <laughs> but really, so the reason we really wanted to talk about aesthetics is to think about the way that it's bound up with politics and political movements. Mm-hmm. And so the French philosopher Jacques Rancière, he was someone who drew our attention to this in his book, The Politics of Aesthetics. And here he argues that politics itself is a fight for recognition mm. and for what is permissible to say or to show in, in the world and society. And those latter things are themselves aesthetic. Mm. So... One thing I want to talk about, have you heard about the Overton window? No, the only Overton I know is on Living Single. So please, <laughs> please teach me something today. Yeah, not that, not that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm sure if I knew live in Living, oh, in, I was going to say in Living Single. No, in Living Color. Living Single. If I knew it better, I probably would have an example from that. But the example that I'm thinking of because over the break I watched the TV show Billions 
It's a stressful show, but I liked okay. it. Uh, oh gosh, okay. <laughs> I'll put it on my list of things. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, if you like suits, it's like suits, but with traders. Um, so it's kind of like that. And so one of the main characters, he's played by Paul Giamatti. He's running for eternal. He's running for attorney general of New York. And in a press conference where he's supposed to step down, he instead decides to reveal that he was being pressured to back out because his detractors were going to leak photos of him consensually engaging in BDSM. So in the end, he wins the election. And in a later episode, the speech that he gave, it's discussed by an Ivy League sociology professor who's played by uh, Juliana Marjulis. And so they talk about how he shifted the Overton window, which, of course, was facilitated by his aesthetic in the show being a wealthy white man. Mm. But the Overton window, it's essentially the range of what is acceptable to the mainstream population at any given time. And so it's typically used to refer to policy, like political policies, legal policies. Um, But I've also seen it applied to general ideas. And so there's a range. This is how, like, the, the... he actually went to he was a columbia professor in social theory or something like that and so he has a range between policy so what's currently existing as policy and the unthinkable Mm. and right before the unthinkable is the radical and so theoretically politicians um people in in the law they have to detect where the window is but they can't actually shift it themselves so they can only ever I mean, this isn't entirely true, but in order to like maintain their popularity or to maintain their position, they only ever propose law or policies that fall within the Overton window. So something mm-hmm. that's sensible, something that's acceptable, never, never radical. Mm. I feel and like that's more so, politicians, but you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> definitely, mm-hmm. it's it's really, really about like politicians and policy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, you can think about it with like co- corporations, um, who, you know, last summer went from departments who went from, oh, Black Lives Matters is radical to, to, you know, committing funds to Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. you know, movements, committing funds to, to black organizations and things like that. So Black Lives Matter went from radical to more or less politically acceptable. And that was based on the climate of public opinion and not because like these corporations or um, corporations or politicians or policymakers were pushing forward any kind of legislation or ideas. It was because the public opinion changed. Mm. So to bring that back to aesthetics, whereas it was considered radical for someone to say Black Lives Matter or to show images of Colin Kaepernick kneeling, Society is now kind of at this point where the statement is recognized within the established order. So it's not an aberration for a, pub, for a company to say Black Lives Matter, whereas it would have been unthinkable two years ago. Or it, or it was like a company that people would then see as radical. Now it's mm-hmm. kind of like this is expected. And so Ranciere, he argues that politics and aesthetics have overlap. Aesthetics itself, it can have subversive power. If you think about art, that is meant to kind of speak truth to power, something like that, Um, because it mobilizes our imagination to make things possible, to make things thinkable. And then politics has been used to make certain images unacceptable 
or to demonize certain groups of people. Right. Like every organization has their Black Lives Matter statement, unless, you know, they truly do not believe that Black Lives Matter. But, you know, that's a a debate for another time. Yeah, Um, before it would say something that if you had the statement and now it says something if you don't. <laughs> and that's that's uh, aesthetic, right? That's something yeah. that's aesthetic. It's what's it's what's shown or what's being said, what's possible to say. What's possible to say, what's being shown, what's being done. All these things operate at different levels. But yeah, to bring it back to aesthetics and its connection to politics, right? We also want to talk about Walter Benjamin. Um, who wrote about the aestheticization of politics, particularly in fascist regimes. So we witnessed in the 20th century, in the 21st century, how closely aligned aesthetics and politics are. And he wrote that fascism sees its salvation in giving these masses not their rights, but instead a chance to express themselves. The masses have a right to change property relations. Fascism seeks to give them an expression while preserving property. The logical result of fascism is the introductions of aesthetics into political life. So in considering this, right, we think about how how the powers that be like to consolidate and keep their power, right? So it's, oh, we're not actually going to change property relations, but we're going to give you the appearance that things have changed by shifting who is seen as owners of property. Mm. Right, And it actually- Remember that for our what in the world. Oh, yeah. Keep that. (laughs) Keep that. Bookmark it. Um, <laughs> it really, in like reading this, I know the the glaring example of fascism that people always point to, right? It's Hitler, Third Reich, all of that. And it reminds me a lot of what we learned about in high school, um, about how Hitler actually rose to power and how he used a lot of these like images of Aryans, ones that he created, of course, because most German people did not look like this Aryan race that he imagined, right? And he used these images and kind of put them forth in public space um, to begin to push forward his eugenicist agenda, right? So he solidified this aesthetic of Aryan purity and said that that would be the goal, a part of the political goal. Um, And the underbelly of that was also an economic consolidation too. So taking away property from Jewish people, um, gay people, And things like that under the assumption of like creating this pure Aryan aesthetic, right? Uh, So that he could actually effectively legislate the death of millions of people. And so German citizens would hold up signs that had like pictures of what a typical, you know, what a real German citizen looks like. And they could say, oh, my neighbor's nose is a little too long, um, right? If they wanted to claim their neighbor's shop. Um, across the street, right? Like say, oh, your your nose is actually a little too long or I saw you sneaking away from the synagogue the other day or whatever, right? And actually sentence their neighbors to death essentially based on like, on how they appeared and how they lived their lives. And so mm-hmm. we talked about this in the podcast before, but we all know that Germany's genocidal movement that they talk about in the 20th century finds its roots in the U.S. where race, class, gender, and other markers of identity being made visible, being given an aesthetic, right, became essential for white property owners to claim and to justify their political power. Right. I think that's a really good example of 
how um, aesthetics can be mobilized to achieve political ends. And mm-hmm. I mean, those political ends can be positive, they can be ne- negative. So, you know, we use a variety of aesthetic elements to change minds and to change society through protest and political movements. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the aesthetic, what it does is, as I said, it kind of mediates the the inside and the outside. So what it does is it evokes particular emotions, particular affects, and then encourages people to use their imagination, right? Imagining different worlds. Um, you can start thinking about the world differently to create a different world. So Hitler was basically making something up. He was just like, oh, this whole Aryan thing, this is real. I'm, you know, I'm... Right. I'm thinking about the world differently. I'm in order to create a different world. So he wanted I'm to. I'm going to create a whole aesthetic that I don't even fit into. Right? Exactly. <laughs> right. Like that my mom like, don't even was fit like, into. Let's see the know? world differently. Let's look at it differently mm-hmm. um, so that I can make that thing real. It's an awful, awful example. <laughs> but someone just, has to, like, I mean, that is what people do. That's how it mm-hmm. starts. Right. So. In terms of protest, I mean, you can think about song, you can think about placards, you can think about the way people dress, and other things that appeal to the aesthetic beyond just the sense of the beautiful, the formal, the sublime, or the funny. Like, what he was doing was was creating a kind of consistency in, mm. in imagery. So I'll give, you, I'll, I'll give folks two examples. One of the things that I often think about when it comes to aesthetics and politics is Justin Trudeau the Prime Minister of Canada, right? His perceived attractiveness, and everyone loved to talk about that. Oh, he's the hot Prime Minister. Oh, yeah. and hey, then big it, hit. Mm-hmm, and then it became a trend <laughs> where like, people were talking about heads of state who are really hot. Um, you know, his perceived attractiveness actually masks, or I'm going to make this word up, but like beauty washes all of the messed up stuff that he's done. Like blackface, like pushing forward pipelines on indigenous land and all of this mm. stuff that people are like, oh no, he wouldn't, he couldn't do anything wrong because, you know, just look how good looking he is. People trust and believe in him. So there's kind of an aestheticization of, of his position mm. um, rather than actually paying attention to his actual politics. And then on the other hand, you know, thinking about aesthetics as coherence, so consistency in appearance and messaging Uh, to demand social and political change. One of the images I think about um, is in 2016, Black Lives Matter Toronto. They stopped the Toronto Pride Parade to demand changes from the Pride Administration. And so they were kind of inspired by the Black Panther Party. They dressed in all black, and then they set off these colorful smoke bombs and stopped the parade until their demands were met. And the demands Mm -hmm. were about, like, creating safe spaces for um, black queer and trans folks um, mm. and like funding their events and organizations like there's their sub organizations um, equally and so you know the photos in the newspaper then in you know in the following days they just they they you know were so aesthetic it was like such an aesthetic right it was like you knew that this was Black Lives Matter Toronto mm. um, it was coherent it was cohesive you know, it depicted power and self-possession, some pastness by kind of, you know, reflecting the Black Panther Party, but also this futurity because they have, you know, all of the sparkles and stuff on their face and things like that. So, you know, this, this up. I want to see some of these <laughs> pictures. So, you know, politicizing aesthetics can be a revolutionary praxis, whereas the aestheticization of politics, as with Trudeau, 
or with the bad man. I don't even like saying his name. <laughs> Is just like, why are we using him as an example? Anyway, so those are ways of creating a myth about the political, right? And so I think that brings us nicely into what we're reading today. Brendan, what are we reading? So we are bringing back our first repeat author. Um, we are reading Angela Davis's essay, Afro Images, Politics, Fashion, and Nostalgia, which was published in Critical Inquiry in 1994. So if you're new here, let me introduce you to Dr. Angela Davis. Um, she is an Aquarius, and that's important. Bow, 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 bow. <laughs> <laughs> it's important um, to me, at least, uh, who is an activist, scholar, and writer who has authored 12 books and counting. I'm sure she will continue writing that pen forever. Uh, she is best known for her activism during the Black Power Movement during the 1970s. And on a real personal note, I've met her like twice. She's always been amazing. Um, and I admire her life and her legacy so much. And so I think this essay really has some keen insights that can be applied to what we might call activism today. So I'm just more than excited to read this essay with y'all. Yes, this is great. This essay was also me and my bag. Period. I mean, it depends on the angle you approach the essay from. But, you know, she is talking about the aestheticization of the political. Like, what better way to defang the revolution than, than to sell it Boop. and hold on to that question? Because it'll, mm. be, it'll be important in our next segment. But for me, this essay really spoke to my interest in, in the way that we refashion the past, particularly in ways that decontextualize and depoliticize it. I mean, okay, are we bringing the research to the podcast? Um no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's an inside. It's an inside joke, y'all. Um, <laughs> we never. We never talk about our. <laughs> you no, get to talk about yours more than mine. That's that's real. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. We gonna have to do something about that. Um, is it a problem with the podcast or is it a problem with my research? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> is that a philosophical question or? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Yes. So this essay is very short. So I feel like y'all could just pick it up, read it in about 25 minutes. Um, but we're going to give y'all a very nice synopsis of it today. So she begins with a short anecdote about her encounter with incarcerated women and performers at a performance in San Francisco. After the show, because she knew some of the performers, she wanted to congratulate them and she went backstage. One of the incarcerated women introduced Davis to her brother who did not recognize her until he recognized her Afro. So we're thrown into this scene and then she then pins this line, which y'all, this line, I was like, shit. Um, it spoke to me deeply. And she said, such responses I find hardly exceptional. And it is both humiliating and humbling to discover that a single generation after the events that constructed me as a public personality, I am remembered as a hairdo. Uh. It is humiliating because it reduces a politics of liberation to a politics of fashion. It is humbling because such encounters with the younger generation demonstrate the fragility and mutability of historical images, particularly those associated with African-American history. 
So Davis continues by giving examples of moments in which her legacy was reduced to the iconic image of her afro, but says that is not the only reason that she's frustrated. So her popularity as an icon from the Black Power era is largely due to what she names a particular economy of journalistic images in which hers has survived for decades. And so the question is, why hers? Why? Mm-hmm. Hmm. We got some theories. Of all the people. (laughs) (laughs) But this economy of images that solidified her reputation as one of the most wanted black revolutionaries in the history of the United States then serves as the basis for consumerist revolutionary fashion in later generations. So the photos that endangered Angela Davis's life and other black women's lives are continuously recreated to sustain a capitalist industry while being detached from their historical context. And so, as I hinted at earlier, you know, I think it's important for us to consider why her image, the Afro, has sustained, has maintained, is still around all of these years later, even while her actual revolutionary work is erased. So one reason could be her role as an intellectual. She has her Mm -hmm. PhD and she has studied in Europe. You know, Angela Davis's class background might be one factor. Another could be colorism, which, you know, we've talked about multiple times on the podcast. And then, you know, maybe the circulation of the image of a light-skinned black woman intellectual with an afro and raised fist, that just fared better in the media than, you know, the image of what might have been a dark-skinned black woman. And so Davis doesn't talk directly about the impact of colorism here, but I think it's important to note. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's, I mean, one of the critics of or critiques of Davis is that she does not necessarily pay attention to colorism in some of her work um, and how that impacts. So I'm like, yeah, I'm, when I read her stuff now, I'm always like, yeah, like, why are you still around? You know, um, <laughs> honestly, when, I I, whew, I don't know if we should leave this in here, but I've had the same question. One of the few from that era. From that era. I might be the only one who's mm-hmm. free from that era. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, lots of people have questions. Um, and yeah, we, yeah. Uh, <laughs> only questions, no answers. Okay. <laughs> only questions, no answers. I hope she takes it to her grave, honey. Um, <laughs> Davis does point us to the impact of the circulation of images of Black people. So she says, on one hand, we can commemorate, look back upon moments from older generations, Right. We can recall older black movements. But on the other hand, right, we can separate that image from its true historical memory. And so what that does is it's actually like it's not like you look at a picture and there's no memory. Right. The memory is actually supplanted by a memory that can be ahistorical and apolitical. Mm-hmm. The example right, in this essay being Angela Davis It's the memory being moved from this radical, dangerous, revolutionary woman who participated in a cop shootout or, you know, to a fashion icon. Like, how does that happen? You know? Um, And this reminds me, uh, I mean, I'm going to say it, y'all. I mean, if you know me for (laughs) real, you know I'm not a fan. So, you know, this is not new or whatever. But this reminded me a lot of, like, Beyonce's Super Bowl performance. Mm. where, you know, everybody was like, oh my gosh, this is revolutionary. Like, 
first of all, she's out here dressed like a Black Panther. And the Black Panthers were definitely interpolated like through the leather jackets and the studs and the afros that everybody else had on. Hmm. Beyonce didn't have an afro, but hmm. you know, we'll, we're going to get to that later. <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> Right, the, the, a certain memory of the party was called forth, but it was for the purpose of entertainment at the Super Bowl, right? Which is, and we know the the tenets of the Black Panther Party, right? They were explicitly anti-capitalist. And the Super Bowl is one of the largest capitalist events of the year. So as much as we, as a collective, love Beyonce, right? We got to ask the question, what does Huey... What does the Black Panther Party got to do with football? Right. And I think after reading this essay, right, Davis would definitely call that revolutionary glamour. Yeah, I think I think you're touching on what is probably in most circles, I'd say, an unpopular opinion. Because everybody thought this was all, you know, like this is like they said, revolutionary. This is her representing for Black folks, you know, really t- really showing our history. But then it's like, who's she showing it to? For whomst? For whomst? For whomst, honey. <laughs> I, I just, I just want to know for whomst. Um, you know, I have a lot of unpopular opinions, but... I like it. That's why I this digress. podcast is so great. <laughs> <laughs> I digress. One of, one of them... We'll get to later on. Yeah. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) All right. So Davis explains that with the circulation of the image, and there are a lot of ideas about the image, you know, the image is not the thing, but the evocation of the thing and all of this kind of stuff. We won't get into that. (laughs) Like I said, not our wheelhouse. Are we? Are we anthropologists or? (laughs) (laughs) We're not visual anthropologists. I think visual anthropologists would have more to say on it. Um, But you know, even with the circulation of the image, it's it's not only removed from the context, but it takes on a completely new meaning, mm-hmm. right? It takes, it, it's just this history, dehistoricized, all of these things. And for me, growing up in Toronto, we did celebrate Black History Month, at least at one of my schools, from what I can remember. Um, and I, I do remember seeing images of Angela Davis, right? You know, definitely the Afro, the raised fist, um, all of those kinds of things. But I honestly had no idea what became of her. Mm. I, I don't remember what I thought, but I probably thought that she was dead mm. or at least in jail. That mm. <laughs> I didn't even know that she was released. Um, wow, that they didn't even teach y'all. They just was like, oh, this is a black history. They were like a black person. Mm-hmm. No Basically, context. I mean, oh, we wow. watched, we used to, I remember sitting, y'all won't know about this, some, <laughs> some of you all, but they used to wheel in the TV oh, into yes. the gym. <laughs> <laughs> like For half the, the school would sit in the gym. The little 30, 30-inch 30 TV with the big back on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Uh, and we would watch like a movie or something. So I think we watched Selma, Lord Selma one year. That's that's the one thing that, that I remember. Anyways, um, if y'all tra- if you if you all follow uh, Tressie McMillan Cottom, she tweeted recently, I mean, just the other day, that this child that she loves, that she was hanging out with, you know, he was playing NBA Live and asked how old Michael Jordan would be if he was still alive. <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> man, just had a documentary. <laughs> 
I cried a little bit inside. I was just like, I have officially crossed over. <laughs> and then, so I say that, I say that to say, I think it was the same thing for me with Angela Davis, right? Because of this circulation of, mm. of this singular image, you know, she seemed stuck in time. You know, it was like she, she wasn't an author, a professor, an advocate, and all of these other great things that she is in present tense because she's very much alive. Mm-hmm. You know, that says something about the idea of the photographic or the videographic or even the textual capture, right? It's something that we as anthropologists have been critiqued for, have critiqued in our work. You know, the way ethnographies and our writing and photos, you know, it others our subjects by capturing them or fixing them as spatially and temporally separate from us. You know what? I just remember that Angela Davis came to my school, my university, when I was an undergrad, and I wasn't able to go to the talk. I remember it was called, the event is called XAO, Expression Against Oppression. She was there, and the image of her on the poster was like a, a kind of silhouette, but of that old picture. And wow. so for me, when I finally did see Angela Davis present tense, I was like, oh, wow, she's like a lot older than yeah. <laughs> I expected, and <laughs> even though it was like 60 years earlier. You know, I still expected this, you know, young woman, big afro or something, but, you know, that's not. She's, I mean, and she's she still has different an afro, hair but. products now and everything. Mm-hmm. Like her afro is definitely a curly fro now, as opposed to yeah. what it was <laughs> back then. But it's Just, yeah, I was surprised. Surprised. <laughs> yeah, as anthropologists, we are really always dealing with the question of how do we move away from um, earlier depictions of ethnographic work that had kind of this like the writing of the primitive quote, the person who's sitting in front of you in the present, but it's always already written about as if they're doing things that are happening in the past. Mm -hmm. And so um, I know, and you talked about theory class. I know that was one of the first things that we read about and talked about in theory class was kind of how do we resist that and Davis actually gives us some clues on how we can resist this. So she talks about um, thinking about photos in their living context, right? So these images, whether and yeah, let me not say photos, let me say images, right? In their living context, so videos, photos, other forms or representations of folks, right? And we do that by thinking about the conditions the historical conditions, but also the present conditions that bring this image to life. And I was thinking about this as like an, a thought exercise, which ooh, sounds makes me sound like someone we both know. Um, <laughs> uh, to think about right how our social media feeds would look if folks couldn't just post a picture with like a witty caption for likes, right? Like how could we bring living context to our images to illuminate the conditions that we're in slash have always been in. Because for me, the other question that lingers behind this um, as a black woman, right, is how much of the past is truly the past, right? How much of a Mm -hmm. picture of me as a black woman experiencing something is present as well as an invocation or an interpolation of something my ancestors went through. Um, And like, even looking at my IG profile today and preparing for this, I was like, oh, like, 
<laughs> what if I had to explain the historical and present conditions in my post? Like, what if I had to be like, you know, I'm posing here in Miami um, and I had to make sure I turned my head to the left so that way you could see this certain angle of my jaw so it wouldn't call in, you know, fat phobic assumptions about black women, da, 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 you know? Like, what mm-hmm. if I had to do that every time I posted? Um, mm. Would that change how people interact with with what I post? Like, would that then be a way to speak truth to power? Hmm. I I think so. I absolutely think so. I think the other, well, that's interesting. Think about the way that you're context- contextualizing it in that way. I think the other thing is about the intention of the photo, mm-hmm. right? Images, they can tell so many different stories, right? Like if I were to look at my Instagram, am I like, is this just a page full of thirst traps or do they tell another story of say you know? celebrating black beauty? And then that then begs questions of, you know, how am I a representation of that? Mm. Is it solely because of my blackness or is it that I also have uh, features or characteristics that are, um, you know, considered acceptable in mainstream society, right? So there are questions there. I mean, for me, I'd say it's definitely just the former. <laughs> I mean, you look you know, good, right? because, so... Because I think your intentions matter when you're taking a mm-hmm. photo, right? The exact same image, exactly the same, you know, could say different things depending on why it was taken and why it was chosen, right? Mm-hmm. You know, one of my pictures, it could say she was enjoying vacation, or it could say she was challenging the stereotype of of the angry black woman kind of thing but who knows i don't know we'll have to we'll have to work on that one yeah <laughs> don't think about it maybe that'll be part of the zora's daughter's research <laughs> some some part of it images um <laughs> but i wanted to go back to what i said earlier about the way that these images endangered her and other black women's lives, mm-hmm. you know, she explains that the wanted poster and the images of her in the Afro, you know, it made other women with Afros, light skinned or dark skinned, which she actually did mention in the, the essay, um, you know, it made them the targets of repression. And so, as I mentioned earlier, the focus on the aesthetic, it allows coherence, mm-hmm. but it also kind of allows this um, conflation, right? So some women told her that they wore an Afro so that they could serve as a decoy, you know, so so they knew they were making use of this idea that that this coherence meant that people would mistake them mm-hmm. for her and they would they could protect her in a sense, right? But then, you know, the appropriation of this aesthetic as fashion, it can also mask these histories and these dangers. Right. And like one of those histories being you rightfully assuming that someone's going to be like, oh, yeah, all black women with Afros look alike and are the same, right? Which, mm-hmm. again, is, is dangerous and and calls back to anti-black histories for sure. And, yeah, even, even thinking about the Afro, right? The Afro was and is, and I must put a real emphasis on the is in kind of a quizzical kind of way, right? a political statement <laughs> that opposes this Eurocentric standard of straight, silky hair, right? So black natural hair is still contested in workplaces, school places, and homes around the world. 
And so it's depoliticization, which it being the Afro, right? And glamorization as a fashion statement simultaneously causing that history and present of violence while erasing it for younger generations. So younger generations might encounter images of people with Afros and be like, oh, it's normal, right? But not necessarily understand the entire history and present of violence. And so in this essay, Davis talks about how she spent the two months underground wondering how the FBI would represent her publicly so that she could create a disguise, which I thought was interesting that she let us into that. Mm -hmm. And so her disguise was a typical glamour look, which I would say, (laughs) um, particularly for a cis-het Black woman, right, which is the kind of straight hair, makeup, pressed blouses, um, And so for her to see her revolutionary look, which is the Afro, her being barefaced with glasses, then be turned into this kind of revolutionary glamour was like appalling. Right, right. And so the way that it was turned into the revolutionary glamour, right, is it became a fashion spread in in Vibe magazine, what they called docu-fashion. And Vibe magazine for the folks who have not crossed over as I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Look, I am in that number. I remember Vibe it was, magazine. It was the black magazine. It was one of the black magazines. Vibe, Jet, you know, all of those mm-hmm. essence. Um, and so that, you know, that again, that there shows the way that black people are implicated in the erasure of history as well. You know, they were just trying to capitalize on some fashion. You know, capitalism mm-hmm. is not going to save us, right? And so for her, she says that that fashion spread is, quote, the most blatant example of the way the particular history of her legal case is emptied of all content so that it can serve as a commodified backdrop for advertising, Mm. end quote. Y'all, does that sound familiar in the year of our Lord with an E? 2021? (laughs) It shall do, honey. It shall do. I think... (laughs) That is a perfect way to segue into our next segment, which is what, what? in the world what is going what on? in the world? Truly. I think the first thing we need to talk about is the Beyonce and Jay-Z Tiffany ad. I mean, <sighs> let's do All it. All right. Let's do it. <laughs> The hive is coming for us. Um, Mm -hmm. All right. So to get everyone up to speed, last week, the jewelry brand Tiffany released a new About Love campaign, which featured Jay-Z, Beyonce, a Basquiat painting, and the famous 128.54 carat yellow diamond that was discovered in South Africa in 1877. That's wild. That's huge. If y'all are like, I, I don't really know anything about carrots, but I'm like, this, there are more carrots in the diamond than dollars in my bank account. That That is where <laughs> I'm at. <laughs> That's where I'm at. Got that 54 cents too. <laughs> <laughs> so on social media, the company, Tiffany, you know, they proudly stated that Beyonce is only the fourth woman and the first black woman to wear the diamond. Okay. So she follows... Uh, Audrey Hepburn, is it Audrey or Catherine? I always forget. I always confuse them. Lady Gaga, folks like that. So while Tiffany thought that they were celebrating American racial progress, the real ones knew that we are just seeing another example of the legacy of colonialism. 
And so, of course, if you just pay attention to the aesthetics, you see a beautiful statuesque black. I'm going to put those in quotes for Brendan's sake because I know she's going to have something to say about it. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Black woman wearing a huge diamond necklace. Okay. She's our fearless leader. You feel pride in seeing your reflection honored in such a way. That's the aesthetics, right? But then that erases the politics, particularly when you consider the context of 1870s South Africa, right? This was, at the time, a mining industry mired in conflict and discrimination that basically created the conditions for apartheid. And so then you realize that Beyonce, everybody's B, you know, Miss Black is King, she's wearing a priceless blood diamond, And I say priceless not because of its carat weight, but because it's the product of enslaved labor and a system that, you know, a war that killed 70,000 people at least, Mm. left several maimed, traumatized, millions of people displaced. Yeah, no, you can't put a price on that. You can't. Um, But somebody will try. I think (laughs) at best... They did a horrible job of reading the room. Like, come on. It's a global panoramic that the death toll increases every day. Niggas and non-niggas are homeless out mm-hmm. in the street being evicted. What felt like this was the time? Hmm? I just, you know, I'm asking both sides, right? Mm-hmm. And even though she has sung about black beauty and strength and wax lyrical about her love for the continent... Right, we know that that couple, bottom line, fundamentally capitalist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I already said what I could say about her Super Bowl performance. I'm not going to say nothing else because I don't want nobody put my address on the internet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we already know right, how we feel about her husband as well. <laughs> um, Nicole Hannah-Jones right, just critiqued Jay-Z along with Will Smith for backing a rent-to-own housing program for low-income families. And so if y'all don't know what rent-to-own housing programs are, they're basically scams. Um, just ended up, you know, where people tend to, um, usually it's lower-income folks who don't have the credit or income to get loans from banks. Uh, so they enter into shady agreements with landowners uh, landlords to say, oh, I'm renting to own the house. And the landlord, mm-hmm. there's no set term like you would have in a mortgage. There's no set really rent, depending on what kind of landlord you have. And so for these two men to be backing a rent to own housing program, it's just like, okay, what you doing? But Nicole Hannah-Jones tweeted and said, credit counseling is not what will take low-income renters to homeowners. Wealth will, right? Which is like, period. Right. All this p- program does is charge struggling people additional fees for being poor, which is what every other predatory lender does. Right. So we talked about it. Like black capitalism is not going to save us. Nope. Nope. Maybe, but maybe, you know, charity will. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> mm. So just, okay, for context for my comment, Tiffany announced that they're going to donate $2 million to HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, which is great, right? You know, I'm not knocking donating some money to universities, to education. $2 million. 
there's definitely that that's a drop in the bucket of their literally well let's see it's they're under the lv i think it's called lvmh um mm-hmm. company which is like the louis vuitton house the fenty. So, they, so yeah so they own they own fenty they just bought tiffany they just you know they own louis vuitton all of these all of these like fashion and beauty brands they make billions okay so the two million dollars drop in the bucket Probably even a drop in the bucket from what they're going to earn having Beyonce and Jay-Z be their ambassadors. Mm-hmm. So as a counterpoint to that $2 million into charity, right? There was an article in the Washington Post. It showed that following the murder of George Floyd, corporations pledged $4.2 billion in grants. Okay, They, they pledged other money like in terms of loans and things like that. But in, in terms of grants to organizations, it was $4.2 billion. This is about 50 companies. And mind you, that makes up less than 1% of those companies' combined uh, net income. That's, that's wild. That's <laughs> wild yes, how much money it's like, it is. Oh, $4.2 billion, That's a lot of money. Those companies combined are worth like 450 something billion dollars, something, 500 and something billion dollars. Um, so, yeah. Half of it now, half of that money was pledged to groups um, focused on economic equality. Okay, so like there was, I think they pledged to like black banks and things like that. And then the, the, you know, most of the rest of it went to what we could call more safe causes like education and health and culture. Okay, and then a tiny fraction of that amount, something in the millions, I think 7 million, went towards criminal justice reform. So... Y'all were like, oh my gosh, this was this huge tragedy, what happened to George Floyd, but not that much money went towards criminal justice reform, abolition, of course not abolition, that's definitely outside of the Overton window at this point. (laughs) (laughs) But like, don't, okay, don't ask me why, but this morning I was listening to some like black conservative talks and John McWhorter... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i'm not like, gonna ask you why. Think, i'm just gonna assume it's an aquarius thing honestly yeah but I, you know what it was so, it was someone else uh who was like do you know about this guy a, a columbia i think he's a student columbia student who's like a black conservative and you know this other guy and he was like i listen to their stuff because you know i just want to know what the other side is saying <laughs> anyways i think mm. i think technically i think uh mcwarrior actually considers himself like a centrist liberal or something. I don't know. Uh, So anyways, so what he said in a lecture um, was that the way to solve educational disparity uh, among black folks um, is to fight the war on drugs. Because the reason that students aren't doing well in school is because their fathers aren't in the home, because their fathers are in prison. And so what we need to do to fight inequality is to fight the war on drugs and the laws that uphold it so maybe, <laughs> so maybe. I'm trying to keep a straight face. Oh, my God. <laughs> Someday, I feel like we need to have a talk with them or something. Just to be like, where are we? Where? Look, where I'm going to have the aspirin ready to go after. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, so, you know, maybe they might actually agree that these companies aren't really invested in, in black liberation, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, a beautiful, shiny diamond on a black woman is supposed to make us forget right we get representation but not any actual change 
You know, in fact, we get the same old shit, as Basquiat would say. Right. Or tag on a wall. <laughs> right. I, going back to what you said earlier about the black in um, quotation marks, I wanted to tease <laughs> apart, right, this claim of representation in the Tiffany ad, um, because I would argue, right, in this instance, that it's not necessarily Beyonce herself. Yes, Beyonce is a black woman. Now I'm going to say this. Yes, Beyonce is a black woman, right? But I don't think in the ad she's represented as black per se. Like if you look, especially the picture or the image that we're talking about in particular, which has Jay-Z in the background looking at the Basquiat, like her hair is straight. It's put up in this kind of, what do they call it? Bouffant kind of updo thing. Mm-hmm. Um, her skin is extremely pale and it's like... Who was on Photoshop for this one, right? They made her look <laughs> real slender, right? And even the features on her face are, to me, I was like, oh, this is giving something else. Like, I'm not sure if this is how Beyonce looks now, right? So I would argue that the black in the picture comes through her husband, right? His hair, uh, his freeform locks, and the Basquiat painting, but I don't want to go too far down that road. <laughs> um, but I do. And I think what I'll, what I'll end up in saying, like, what does it say when Beyonce is the first and only black woman that's able to do something? Like, what does that say mm-hmm. about the kind of black person that's able to enter into spaces? We've said plenty of times, right, that integration is not activism. Representation is not activism. So I just want to know who on Beyonce's team and who on Tiffany's team took a look around at this anti-Black world and said, (laughs) this is what we need in this moment, right? And to show Beyonce wearing a diamond that nobody can afford. (laughs) Not a soul. Not a soul. soul. uh, Like, again. Uh, So I did, I wanted to, because you mentioned this earlier uh, in one of our texts chats and I was just like you know I want to fight her on this one a little bit fight me <laughs> or maybe it was uh, actually maybe you tweeted it oh yeah maybe I tweeted, tweeted it. it I was being <laughs> spicy you know and yeah. I wanted to fight you a little bit on this I mean fight me what about I feel like we have been black people we have been saying like black people are multiple there are many different mm. ways and looks um, of blackness, right? So, why come for this particular aspect of of Beyonce's representation in this in this ad? Hmm. I think for me, it doesn't necessarily like preclude her from being black. Like again, Beyonce is always going to be black no matter what. I think thinking back to like our Afro pessimism episode i think this shows the limit right like like Mm. there's the the whiteness spectrum okay then blackness and then there's like i think beyonce in this instance is like right up there because it's like because at first when when i saw the image i was like who is that Mm -hmm. you have to look and there are several other images of beyonce where if you look too quickly she looks like a white woman Um, especially when she's got her straight lace front on you know so I'm but like, everyone knows she's black. Everyone knows it's Beyonce and knows that she's black, right? Yeah, but it's also just like I don't know if you saw that SNL skit where when 
you know how white people got into a whole thing when Formation came out? And it was like, oh, yeah, Beyonce is black, right? And so <laughs> somehow, again, the Super Bowl mm-hmm. performance reminded everyone that Beyonce is black. Um, right. So I think... there. Yes, the, I, I see what you're saying. There is this, this way in which Beyonce, because... Well, actually, let me say what I was going to say. There is a way in which Beyonce transcends mm-hmm. blackness or the black, right? Mm-hmm. And... That is, of course, facilitated by the way that she looks. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying. I think that's what I meant. So I'm troubling, troubling the representation in that way of just like, okay, how black is this moment, right? Um, Mm -hmm. When most. Maybe she should have worn an afro. (laughs) Yo, if that. (laughs) Tiffany's. Would Tiffany have run that though? Okay. Tiffany would not no, have run that. No, because an afro is not luxury or glamour, right? Mm-mm. So. It's a revolutionary glamour. Mm. <laughs> Look at us bringing things around. <laughs> but then that, that then begs the question, what is it about Jay-Z that allows him to be in the ad, even though he has this, you know, he has the... Um, the free-formed. Unformed lo- the free-formed mm-hmm. locks and... You know, he does he does have those like typically expected features of blackness. I mean, he's also kinda brown and light skinned, but <laughs> the other parts of him definitely. You know, so what allows him to be in the ad? Beyonce. I feel like she was like, Y'all not about to help me out here being a single lady. I'ma have my boo on here. You know how she be dragging him along? <laughs> <laughs> um I'm sorry to admit this, but I ironically, not ironically, but I listened to Kevin Samuels ironically. Oh, okay. y'all don't know who that is. He's like the high value man person. And <laughs> <laughs> he always talks about, oh, what do women bring to the table? Mm. You know, what do you bring to the table for a high value man? Nothing. And, you know, women would be like, well, you know, I'm smart. I got my career. I have connections. He's like, a high value man don't need doesn't need that. A high value man doesn't need your intelligence. He doesn't need this. He doesn't need that. And so my, you know, Bay and I were trying to figure out what exactly does a woman in his is in his mind need to bring to the table for a high value man. And the thing that we came to the conclusion of is that basically he needs she needs to be able to be someone who can spend time in a room with wealthy white people and not embarrass him. Mm. And that is why when black men <laughs> are on the come up, they have wives who look like Beyonce or Becky, who come from a particular class. Y'all, this is spicy. I'm about to get roasted. Oh, my God. I'm never getting a job. <laughs> no, I don't think I, I really don't think that what you're saying is like, oh, my gosh. This is going like like oh my gosh this is so horrible I think it's true like it makes me think about this book I read a long time ago about colors and when I was in high school and doing research projects because I was born a nerd um, <laughs> and one of the authors Ronald Hall I don't know I think um, talked about like he interviewed black men. Um, 
And he was just like, you know, why did you choose your wife? And a lot of them cited that as their reason. I'm just like, oh, you know, I'm in certain social circles and I need someone who knows certain types of etiquette, right? And if we think about the history in the U.S. where etiquette classes and debutante balls and all these things were basically lighter skinned black people, Creole people seeing white society and and basically parroting white society um, in order to keep their bloodlines pure, whatever the hell that means. Um, it, it all kind of trickles. literally means mixed, but okay. Right. Like, <laughs> it's like blended. <laughs> Who had, I mean, just basically keep the, keep the bloodline as white as possible. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just like, it makes all these things trickle down. And so it makes sense um, that the only thing that would, a woman could bring to a high value man is being as close to white, if not white, you know. Um, mm-hmm. If not in look, then in other forms of aesthetics, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how your hair looks, how you dress, how you speak, the kinds your of topics body. that you know to speak about. Absolutely your body. Because one of the things he always says is, how much do you weigh and how tall are you? You know? You know? So. Oh, I'm so glad all I of that- bring nothing to that table. I'm so glad I am not <laughs> a high-value woman. I'm going to just say that. Oh, Lord. So, all, but all of that to say is, <laughs> all of that to say is that Beyonce is what allows Jay-Z to be in that ad. Mm-hmm. Her. Her. Okay, so the last topic we wanted to talk about on this particular subject was, of course, the art, because we've been talking about aesthetics. Uh, you know, the, the images, the photos, they feature a rarely seen piece by Jean-Michel Basquiat, and it's from his private collection. It's called Equals Pie. And so I'm not going to speak for Basquiat, because people have said, like, he's probably rolling in his grave from mm-hmm. this from this quote-unquote homage. You know, some people say he's anti-establishment. You know, his some of his work definitely spoke to anti-capitalism. But others would say that he wouldn't mind the, the commercialization of his art because he was, like, friends with Andy Warhol or whatever. Friends. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, but for me on this front, like, what really gets on my nerves is that I believe everyone should have access to art into mm-hmm. museums right like i love that in london you know most museums are free in dc the museums and you know galleries are free not the case so much in new york but anyways a lot of artwork throughout history has been bought up by wealthy people or it's been plundered from the continent or from mm-hmm. other countries and hung up in europe and in in the United States and Canada, um, you know, and a few people actually get to see it and to look at it and to commune with it as I, I like to do, you know, and I, it just, to me, it just seems so selfish. And then to just put it in this ad, like, oh, here I am with this like very rare Basquiat mm-hmm. and I'm just looking at it and appreciating it. And of course it's only him, mm-hmm. you know, looking at the painting. I think that says, that says a lot. And so I went to, the first ever Basquiat retrospective at the Barbican in London, which was not free. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, a lot of his work, I remember looking at the, you know, the little title cards and stuff. And a lot of them would be like private collection, Switzerland, private collection, Switzerland. So it was held in someone or another's private collection. And I'm like, huh? He's a graffiti artist. His stuff was made for the public. (laughs) 
on purpose and yet i mean we we talked about that um <laughs> that article of that person who like bought air basically or like the people who like they auctioned off air did we talk about that <laughs> i don't think so oh it was like an artist selling something at a um art gallery and it was nothing but people were right. buying it yeah yeah people, they were auctioned, oh. they auctioned it i think <laughs> what i think is crazy is that you can buy air rights in new york so if you build a building, you can buy the air rights around it so nobody can build within that airspace oh, so that you can you, maintain your view. Have you seen that Christina Aguilera movie? They talk about it in that one. The one where she's like... <laughs> I, <laughs> I know she movie. had a movie. <laughs> oh my God, I love that movie. It's so <laughs> dramatic. I love it so much. Um, oh my God, what is it called? Burlesque? So was this, um, was this like pre... Uh, blackified Christina Aguilera or post? Post. This was post like 2010. No, yeah, that was um, that's post black. She was not quite in her oh I'm a Latina phase either. It was kind of <laughs> she was like resting in the <laughs> the resting whiteness. in the ether, <laughs> <laughs> resting in the whiteness. <laughs> Talking about air rights, shares in it. I just. I love it because it's it's such a dramatic movie. Um, <laughs> well, my ex and I we went to see because um, they really liked uh, or really like Basquiat. So we went to see Basquiat at Guggenheim, and me too. The read that I got, oh yay! The read that I got <laughs> from his shit was that yeah, it was definitely anti-establishment. Like a lot of his work was painted on buildings and other non-normative places to display art. And even if you were friends with Andy Warhol and like, you got to ask like, were they friends or were they, you know, um, insert whatever word you want to insert here. Uh, Basquiat was a queer young black man who lived with addiction, right? Like Mm -hmm. that is the context that we, the living context that we need to bring to this art. Mm. Right. Um, he would not be able to access the places that his art hangs today. I think about that a lot. Like, so I really don't think it's an exaggeration to imagine that he's like rolling in his grave. Mm. Honestly, I think that was perfect. Perfect call back to what we read today. But I think let's move on because we definitely know that while Jay Z and Beyonce have influence, they're not activists. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we wanted to touch on. So over the last few years, we've been, you know, witnessing the rise of the activist influencer, Mm -hmm. right? People who get paid to create content about social justice. And in the spirit of full transparency, we do not get paid by any brands. Speaking about (laughs) Brendan and I, (laughs) we have received donations and grants for our work. But we are not professional radicals. <laughs> we are still professional students, y'all. Absolutely. That is what we get paid for. This is our side project that does a lot of really great work. Um, mm-hmm. And so we've also, you know, agreed between ourselves and other discussions that we wouldn't advertise or sell anything because one, it makes podcasts really inauthentic and frankly kind of annoying. <laughs> mm-hmm. And two, we're not capitalists. All right. So like, Yes, we and of course we buy things and we spend money and we earn money because we recognize that we need money to live in this here world, send the asteroid. 
<laughs> Insert Ashwood. <laughs> but we are not trying to sell you all anything. Mm-mm. All right. So, um, anyways, these activist influencers who apparently don't want to be called influencers anymore um, are essentially individuals, although you see siblings, friends, couples, things like that, um, with a large platform whose main sphere of influence is online. And so, in a sense, it's kind of democratized popularity and celebrity. You know, it's also democratized knowledge sharing, mm-hmm. um, for better or for worse. Uh, I, I definitely have my <laughs> unpopular opinion on that one. Um, this activist influencer model has kind of blurred, blurred a lot of lines, right, between, like, the expert and the amateur and mm-hmm. no, it's not always a bad thing. Um, but a lot of the time it's, it's not, it is. <laughs> it's not, you yeah, know, a lot of times it's, it's not great. Um, I mean, you know, I, mean, I have nothing wrong. I have nothing against like the autodidact or anything like that. I just think that, um, and I'm also not like, oh yes, you must have an institutional stamp in order to do something. Mm-mm. But I do think like what you're, part of what you're talking about is in order for you to be popular in these platforms, there's a certain way you have to kind of scale down mm-hmm. knowledge or, and like simplify things, take away the context of things in order for it to be something that's aesthetically pleasing um, and something yep. that's like easily circulated. So yep. that I think I have the issue with for sure. It's because of slacktivism, y'all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> We are just, like, people who want to feel good about the things that we do, but we don't actually want to, like, put a lot of effort into it. It's, like, a natural human thing, but it's not working for liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes. So, one of the things that, you know, we've talked about before in, like, our group chat and stuff is should activist influencers be making money, right? Like, people have been critiquing Tamika Mallory Trees Colors, D-Ray, the Black Lives Matter Global Network, you know, they're engaging in what people are calling this racial justice capitalism, profiting from what is supposed to be nonprofit work. What do you think? Ooh, what don't I think? I think <laughs> this question. Um, I think there are multiple layers to this discussion. And as a Gemini, I'm like, oh, let me put on one hat in one moment and another hat in another. So I'm just going to pull a couple for time's sake. Um, I think people always get on black people for having, especially black women, mm. um, for having nice things and making a lot of money. But then they also feel like folks like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates earn their fortunes and should continue to hoard their wealth. Right. Mm. So people, we as a society, right, we think that service workers, social workers, counselors, teachers, et cetera, don't deserve to make a lot of money because they should be rewarded from the goodness of their actions. But I'm going to tell y'all a little secret. Goodness don't pay bills. BG&E do not take my good work and <laughs> keep my lights on, you know? Um, and... I think that just shows right, a, a few things. Right? As a society, we think it's natural for white men on Wall Street to make six figures while organizers who are actually doing change in community, positive change in their communities, have to work two jobs to make their ends meet. 
Um, so we have to let go of this and I'm going to name it as a, it's a Christian notion. I'm going to name it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that good deeds have their reward in he- in heaven or some shit like that, right? Like, uh, I also do believe that one of the problems here is um, that I will say is a very salient critique of Black um, activist influencers is right this accumulation of money, power, and status that then actually overpowers the political work of the movement, which Davis talks mm. about in thinking about the aestheticization as something that overpowers what the movement actually is here to do. Right. So- I would say personally, like I have no problem with Tamika Mallory or Patrice Cullors buying the home of their dreams with their money. Um, that's their business. That's your business, honey. Buy you got your money, buy your home, right? I have an issue when the message becomes, which is particularly in Tamika Mallory's case, right, where she's on a Cadillac commercial, right? Mm. And the message then becomes buying a Cadillac is somehow tied to black liberation. Like that's, 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 I mean, that's that's the aesthetic message. That's not right. what they actually said, right? But that's what one might expect to take away from that. Right. Like, And the commercial in particular was like trying to show this generational ascension, basically. So like, mm-hmm. basically, my ancestors worked for me to be able to own a Cadillac. Um, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't I don't think that's it. Right. And so <laughs> a Cadillac I, isn't freedom. I mean, maybe if it lets you drive around, but it's not the Cadillac. I know. I mean, let me let me let me ask my ancestors if that's all <laughs> they want for me is a Cadillac. Um, I might mm. be surprised. Who knows? Um, but yeah, like I think people need to really think about. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Like, I think people really don't know how deep they're like massage noir and anti-blackness runs and how deeply they hold black women to separate standards and everyone else um when this becomes a topic of debate in particular we all sell our bodies in this capitalist system to survive right there's not any of us who doesn't have to do that in order to to like work and survive and the folks who choose not to are usually demonized and or incarcerated right but we um, can talk unless about- they're super wealthy unless they're super wealthy and then it's like, oh, this is natural. If you're poor, you're thing. lazy. If you're rich, you earn the break. You're gifted. Mm-hmm. You're blessed. Um, but I will say, like, for sure that because even though we all have to sell our bodies in this system, right, that does not mean that we have to re-commodify the dead black boy, girl, woman, non-binary person, black man, right, in order to make a living. So I do think that that is where the critique the critique holds the most for me is at Mm. that point. Right. Yes. Goodness does not pay the bills. And you know what? Neither do the wealthy. (laughs) They don't pay bills. They don't spend their own money. They leverage other people's. Mm. They don't even pay their fair share of taxes. Why? And so, you know, one one of the things that I've been thinking about is why... Is there this idea that a true activist or an organizer has to be broke? Why does it? Why does that seem to connote authenticity? Like, you know, why can't it be both and? Why is it that if you're not struggling, you're not really for the cause? Or if you were struggling and now you're not struggling anymore, you're a sellout. Right. Like y'all thought y'all 
thought that Martin Luther King Jr. was out here eating out of cans. I wasn't going to say what I wanted to say, but <laughs> I'm going to move on. Um, I think, though, that it does stem back to, like I said, like this Christian ideology. You know, I haven't been in seminary school in like 16 years, but I remember learning there about how the rich won't see heaven. <clears throat> yes, like, I, this- believe, I believe the line is something like a camel is more likely to fit through a pinhole than the rich is to the rich are to enter the gates of heaven. Something yeah, like that. It's like, yeah, the camel through <laughs> the eye of a needle or something. Yeah. And it's so like yes, eye of the needle. And, you know, Jesus, Yeshua, however you know this particular figure in the Bible, was talking about releasing wealth as as a standard of status, right? And understanding that like you need to not hoard wealth. But people take that and run with all these different interpretations. But I say that to say like this whole eth- this whole thing about ethic and hard work and like how if you're working hard and doing good things that should be your reward might stem from these like biblical teachings that were used to justify the exploitation of people around the world and colonialism. Like they had to somehow mm-hmm. get colonized people to believe that working all day for either next to nothing or absolutely nothing, right? While Europe and the US got rich was the right and godly thing to do. And so I feel like also today, a lot of like good work, like service work, teaching, organizing, etc is feminized as care work. Mm -hmm. So patriarchy could also be foundational to this. Like women are property. Property cannot own anything. Furthermore, it's your duty and your purpose to perform this labor. So the reward is that you get to live to do it. (laughs) Which (laughs) uh, is sad. And (laughs) like another thing I think about too is that like when we paint these billionaire um and other wealth hoarding jobs as acts of merit and luck that also justifies them in a capitalist mind frame, right? If you work hard enough, you make the money, but we all know that that's not the case. Mm-hmm. I definitely find myself fighting my own internalized, internalized capitalism and things like that, but it's a whole process. It's a whole process. And I definitely have to like been like, mom, no, <laughs> it's not the case that so-and-so people are lazy and so-and-so people are are smarter than other people. It's really not the that's really not, it's not. how that goes. But no. I'm anyhow, <laughs> on the note of the activist influencer industrial complex, there was of <laughs> course the recent controversy with Jessica Natal formerly known as So You Want to Talk About on Instagram. This account had nearly, or it actually still has, but has changed its name. Um, It has almost 3 million followers. Okay, so she created the account in February 2020, quickly amassed millions of followers, many of whom believe the account was associated with Idioma Oluo, the author of the New York Times bestseller So You Want to Talk About Race. So Natal was anonymous until, I think, April or something, and she announced her upcoming book that has now been shelved, Um, and that announcement revealed that she's white. And so Aluo said that the graphics had misled people into believing that 
uh, you know, the account was associated with her and her book, mm-hmm. um, which it was not. So it was misleading. And she said that the whole account and all of the posts are simplifications of anti-racist and social justice work. And she said, quote, I am not interested in making this over 400-year-old complex system simple for white people to digest. Preach. End quote. And so the messed up thing, I mean, of one of the messed up things, <laughs> is that Oluo <laughs> actually contacted Natal in 2020. And instead of responding, she just put a disclaimer on her page saying that she was not associated with, so you want to talk about race. <laughs> so now that she's changed her name, she's taken off the disclaimer. Um, but of course, Instagram is an excessively visual medium. Uh, so there is an expectation of a consistency of aesthetic. She's kind of like, she has these simplified um, graphics. They're very uh, neutral colors, you know, mm-hmm. the, the whites and yellow, uh, yellow, white, pink, beige, black. Yeah. Those are kind of the colors that she would use. Um, I think she said that she was trying to speak to uh, people who drink mimosas, mimosa drinking women. Uh, oh. like corporate mimosa drinking women. <laughs> so in between your sips of mimosa, you're scrolling? Yeah, Interesting. Um, And so this aesthetic uh, that she chose is, of course, a simplification of real social justice work, which is, again, this aestheticization of politics mm-hmm. that creates these myths that um, that basically masks all of the nuance and complexity of these issues okay and so she was making people feel like they were learning people were like oh i'm learning something because i read this post about uh white splaining i remember that was one of her posts oh yeah but in as between my brunch mimosa in between my mimosas um but as aluo pointed out they weren't learning anything because after she came out and said that, hey, this account is not associated with me, and this is kind of trash, um, a lot of Natal's followers slid into Oluo's DMs, and they were like, "Do you do you, are you sure you have the legal right over the name of this page? Blah, blah, blah. Are you sure that this is your work? Oh. <laughs> it's like, if you're, following, if you're following this person who's supposed to be doing social justice work... Um, Sliding into a black woman's DMs and asking her if she has the right to her own work probably means that you haven't learned a thing. Nada. I mean, I don't know. How much can you learn on champagne and orange juice? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Um, I can't drink champagne anymore, so I really don't know. Um, Darn. It gives me a headache. I don't know what it is. The bubbles. Maybe... They really do all this to say, like, they stay stealing Black women's clout, intellectual property, names, just all of that to make a to make a platform for themselves. Like, um, it's I some days, some mornings when I'm reflecting, I'm like, how do people wake up with the level of audacity that they do and go about their <laughs> lives? But I also know that in order for me to have the answer to that question, I would have to switch up my whole situation. And uh, I'm not trying to do that, uh, if you get what I'm saying. So, I mean, we could also take this moment to pause and like 
refer our listeners back to a controversy that we I called into earlier this year with Dr. Kiona, whose platform also truly <laughs> visualizes um, this activist influencer conundrum. Um, and we won't belabor it. I'll just say, like, listen to our episode, The Empire Collapsed Back, to learn more. Because that, yes. that was a wild ride. <laughs> and we're still on it. <laughs> we're still on it, y'all. We literally months later are still on it. Um, but yes. All right. Well, just to wrap things up, you know, we've gone from Angela Davis's image of revolution and dissidence being appropriated as mm-hmm. docu-fashion into this infographic industrial complex Mm. where there is more emphasis placed on aesthetics over substance. So right now, where we're at in this social media landscape, activism just means throwing up a black square. It means something that's marketable and profitable and packaged up conveniently for consumption. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe even we are guilty of that, right? Even, Even when we say... We're hoping that it encourages people to seek out more information for themselves. Does it? I don't know. Are we doing the right thing? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> Time will tell. Time will tell. I mean, if somebody gets gets on their Instagram platform and says, Zora's daughter said this, and it's something real wrong, then we would really have to... <laughs> We have to think about that. Do we have the right to our name? Um, anyway. <laughs> um, in all seriousness right now, speaking of a world that is just in chaos in the moment, um, we wanted to make sure that we note that we are holding folks in Haiti in our hearts, even as Haiti has drifted out of the Overton window in this moment. I don't know if I'm using it correctly or not, but... No. <laughs> <laughs> I think you meant the, the news cycle. News cycle. <laughs> That's exactly what I meant. Right? It has drifted out of the news cycle. Right? And the folks in Louisiana and Mississippi who are impacted by Ida um, and who will be and continue to be affected by these, quote, natural disasters. We want to say that we are holding you all in our hearts and in our prayers and the ways that Zora's Daughters is out here supporting folks. So um, if you all know ways that we can help in mutual aid, please let us know. Yes, and please keep going through our back-to-school giveaway. Um we are purchasing things from people's Amazon wish list for students and teachers. So, you know, even once we close the comments on that, you all can keep going through and, you know, bless someone with a little with a little gift from their wish list. Yes. All right. Well, that is our episode for today. We are back. We're back. We did the thing. I'm telling you, we need to get that sound effect, honestly. <laughs> Oh, I have it. I could do it. But I'm not <laughs> it's okay. I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for listening. This episode was produced by Alyssa James. That's me. And Brendan Tynes. That's her. And distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by a grant from the Arts and Science Graduate Council 
and donations from listeners just like you. Yes, thank you all for the support. If you like this episode, please think of at least two friends who might like it too and tell them about our podcast. We would love to hear what you have to say about the episode, so be sure to follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. And for transcripts, syllabi, and information on how to cite us or how to donate, please visit our website, zorasdaughters.com. We got that brand on lock right there. On lock. It's about to be on my head soon. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Be kind to yourselves. Bye. Bye.